church family. Our reading this morning is taken from Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1 to 49. And if you're using the church Bible, it's page 617. Daniel chapter 2, reading from verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king offer such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God for ever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and opposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning.
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you, and you have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Philip will continue. Uh, the same reading, I'm continuing from verses 31. You looked, O king, there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of his statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its leg of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of packed clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The, the wind swiped them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and mighty and glory. In your hands, he placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, wherever they live. He made you ruler over them all. You are that head of God. After you, another king will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, 
one of bronze. You rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of packed clay and partly of iron, so this will be divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As those were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with black clay, so the people will be mixture and will not remain united anymore than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor it will be left to, add to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has sown the king that will take place in, in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. And then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor, ordered that an offering and incense be uh, presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in, in a high position and, and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Sadrach, Meshach, Abdenego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained the royal in the royal court. This is the word of the Thank you, Brenda and Philip, very much indeed. Uh, won't you please keep the Bible open in front of you? It's quite a long passage, and it's going to be a great help to me if you can follow with me as I try and unpack it for us this morning. Let's ask the Lord to be with us. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word, which points us to your Son, the Lord Jesus. For it is in him that we find strength for the weak, compassion for the needy, and hope for the hurting. Please draw near to us by your spirit and through your word, that we may see Jesus and find the help that we need. In his name we pray. 
Amen. Well, um, my text this morning, I think it's always helpful, isn't it, to have one verse to sort of focus on. And I think that verse has to be verse 20. Have a look at it. Daniel 2, verse 20. Daniel said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Now, the question is, where does true authority lie? Uh, Because the answer to that question has very practical implications for the way that we live our lives. Uh, Last week, uh, millions of people around the world, probably some of you, watched the coronation of King Charles III in London. Uh, It was an amazing spectacle. Uh, The king was taken to Westminster Abbey in a magnificent uh, horse-drawn carriage. Uh, Heads of state from around the world had gathered to witness the event, watched by millions of people, of course, on television. At the ceremony, the music, the sheer scale of the event were very impressive indeed. To the casual observer, it must have seemed pretty clear where real authority lies. I mean, it must be with the man that the crowds were cheering for. It must be, surely, with the man with the crown on his head. Must be with the man seated on the throne. But in fact, King Charles has remarkably little power. Under the British Constitution, real authority lies with the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. It doesn't lie with the man wearing the crown. So, dear friends, appearances can be extremely deceptive. What about in Babylon all those years ago? Well, the book of Daniel um, is set in Babylon where the king was a man called Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, In those days, he was the most powerful man on the planet. Uh, Later in the chapter, he is described as the king of kings. Uh, He was the king of the greatest superpower the world had ever seen. He ruled over many nations, And his power wasn't limited by an opposition party or a troublesome press. Anybody who dared stand up to Nebuchadnezzar soon became fuel for the fiery furnace or food for the lions. He is a very powerful man indeed. And what about God? Well, at first sight, God is nowhere to be seen. In those days, if you lived in Jerusalem, well, at least you could see the temple. And the temple, of course, represented God's presence with his people and his authority over them. But now, the people of God, the little nation of Judah, has been defeated by Babylon. And to make the point that Nebuchadnezzar's victory wasn't merely political but spiritual as well, He had taken some of the sacred objects out of the temple and placed them in the temple of his God in Babylon. So it looks like 
It's not just a defeat for the Judean army, but for the God of Judah as well. Where does authority lie? Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Wisdom would seem to suggest that when you're in Nebuchadnezzar's country, you bow down to him, you put him first, you worship him. It's common sense. But the message of the book of Daniel is, think again. Appearances can be very deceptive. Wisdom and power belong to God, says Daniel. We're going to learn two lessons this morning. First, wisdom belongs to God and is given by him. That's the first 30 verses. And secondly, power belongs to God and is given by him. So firstly then, wisdom belongs to God and is given by him. I want you, if you will, to picture Nebuchadnezzar lying on his bed in the royal bedchamber. Most people don't get to see him like that. During the day, of course, he's wearing his crown and the royal robe. He looks almost godlike, doesn't he, as people are bowing down before him. No doubt at times he believed the hype that he was superhuman, practically a god. But in the royal bedchamber, he's extremely human. And reality kicks in. Come with me to chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he couldn't sleep. Some of you suffer from insomnia, and you know what a terrible affliction it is. Uh, the things that you can just about cope with during the day seem utterly overwhelming in the middle of the night. And feelings of anxiety and insecurity and guilt seem to take over. At times, all rulers seem to suffer from chronic insecurity. In fact, the, the more powerful a ruler becomes, the more he realizes what he doesn't actually control. So he becomes increasingly desperate to strengthen his authority against every imaginable threat. But of course, no ruler can be absolutely sure where the next threat is going to come from. He can't tell the future. After all, he's only human. And so here we find uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of his day, worried in the middle of the night, fearful of the future. He's stripped of his royal clothes. There he is, imagine him, wearing his pajamas, tossing and turning, bathed in sweat, looking very human indeed. His insecurities have multiplied because of a recurring dream. He assumes it's significant, probably a message from the gods. He just can't figure out what it means. He simply doesn't have that kind of wisdom. But for him, that's not necessarily a huge problem. I mean, if you're the most powerful man in the world, 
well, you've got some of the wisest people on your payroll. And so he calls them in, verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. That long list is telling us that there were plenty of them, and their job was to advise the king. And they did so by means of magic and astrology and the interpretation of dreams. And we know that because archaeologists have discovered dream manuals, can you believe it, from those days, with lists of the common features of the dreams people had and some interpretation of what those features meant. But this time, the king says, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me. Not surprisingly, the wise men say, unless you tell us the dream, we can't help you. Nebuchadnezzar won't have it. He gets angry and he says, on pain of death, you tell me the dream and its interpretation. We're not actually told in the text whether he'd forgotten what the dream was. Of course, that's possible, isn't it? I guess we've all had the experience of waking up uh, knowing that we've had a really, really vivid dream. We just can't quite remember what it was about. Or more likely, I think, the king decides that he's going to test the so-called wise men. I think perhaps he suspects they might be frauds. And so he's saying, you prove to me that you really do have wisdom. Tell me my dream. And then I'll know, when you tell me the interpretation, that it's actually worth listening to. And they reply, verse 10, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. Verse 11, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. So for the super-powerful king in his pajamas, the limitations are very real. And there are limitations, too, for the armies of wise men, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers. None of them can tell the king what his dream was about. They lack that kind of wisdom. Now, friends, that I think reminds us, doesn't it, that human knowledge is actually far more limited than we sometimes think. Um, over the last couple of hundred years, there have, of course, been massive advances in human knowledge, and science can tell us some things about the future. Uh, it can predict with some accuracy how a pandemic might spread around the world, or how much the temperature of the oceans is going to rise in the next 30 years or so. But you see, it can't tell us the future of our individual lives or of world affairs. That's why, of course, so many people today still turn to horoscopes, hoping to learn something about their future. And it's why uh, businesses employ forecasters called futurologists, can you believe it, to tell them what's going to happen in the years to come based on current and historic trends. But one futurologist recently said this, and I quote, accuracy is impossible 
for all but the most trivial of questions. So it seems that no matter how brilliant you are, you still can't predict the future. No one can. And yet, all of us have an inbuilt desire to know what the future holds. And the result is anxiety and insecurity. Insecurity globally, uh, will our planet survive? Or will it be destroyed by some kind of environmental disaster? Or will humanity be wiped out by some hideous pandemic? Those things are obviously possible. And what about personal insecurity? For younger people, I guess the question might be, will I able, be able to find and hold on to a decent job? Will I find my soulmate, my, my life's partner? And will those two things together satisfy me and make me happy? For those of us who are a little bit older, uh, it might be, well, is my health going to hold up? Uh, with all the uncertainties in our world, will my children and my grandchildren be okay? Will I have enough money? I mean, the list just goes on and on, doesn't it? All of us want to know what about the future. But friends, that's the kind of wisdom we just don't have. And when the questions just won't go away, we have sleepless nights, we lie there, tossing and turning. If only we knew what's going to happen, we could plan for it, and there'd be nothing to worry about. But no human being can tell the future. Uh, for all our knowledge and sophistication, we lack wisdom. God alone is the source of wisdom. Well, in our passage, in verse 14, have a look at it. Um, Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, begins to round up all the wise men in Babylon to put them to death, including Daniel and his friends. But Daniel goes to speak to Arioch, and we're told, aren't we, that he speaks to him with wisdom and tact. I think that's probably an example for us, isn't it, when we find ourselves disagreeing with people in authority. Daniel doesn't get all steamed up. He's not all hot and bothered. He doesn't scream and shout. He's respectful. He recognizes reality, that actually Nebuchadnezzar does have some power and authority in God's world. And because of that respectful attitude, he gets a hearing before the king, verse 16. And the king says, okay, I'll give you a little bit of time to work out what might happen and what my dream actually means. The situation is obviously urgent. Daniel leaves the palace and he goes straight to his friends. Notice, by the way, he doesn't go to the library he doesn't go to find all the books on Babylonian wisdom that he'd been learning for the previous three years. He doesn't refer to his lecture notes. No, he goes to his friends. And verse 18, they pray. Daniel urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends 
might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. As we go on through the book of Daniel, we're going to find Daniel praying again and again. It's the mark of a man or woman of God. Just think about that, because, of course, the person with a worldly or a Babylonian mindset never prays. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel reaching up to the heavens? What a name we've made for ourselves, they said. That, of course, is the way the world thinks. Life is all about what I do for me and my glory. It never actually thinks about praying because prayer recognizes our limitations. Prayer recognizes that if we're going to achieve anything worthwhile, God has got to enable us to do it. And so he gets the glory. So Daniel prays because only God can give us the perspective we need to make sense of life. Only God can give that kind of wisdom. And in verse 19, God graciously answers the prayer. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Daniel goes straight to the king, and not surprisingly, the king says in verse 26, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Very interesting that Daniel actually doesn't answer that question straight away. He wants to make it crystal clear to Nebuchadnezzar that although he does have the interpretation, it's not because of his superior wisdom. It's because God revealed it to him. Verse 27, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. It's not the experts and their books who provide wisdom. Wisdom comes actually from a very unlikely source indeed. It comes from one young Judean man, a man who prayed. Because wisdom belongs to God and is given by him. It's a really important truth for you and I to grasp, especially in times like these when there are so many uncertainties and so many experts, quite frankly, claiming to have all the answers. But the truth is their knowledge is very limited. Their knowledge can't tell you what's going to happen in your life next year, next week, or even this afternoon. And it can't tell us what's going to happen in the world. That kind of knowledge belongs to God alone. Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian leader of an earlier generation. And one of his books is called He is There, He is Not Silent. He's talking about God. You see, the world assumes God is not there. Uh, or if he is there, he's rather like a stuffed dummy. He does nothing. He says nothing. But Francis Schaeffer, reflecting the message of the Bible, says, no, he is there. He is not silent. 
He exists. He rules. He reveals wisdom. And of course he's done that most clearly and completely through the Lord Jesus. It's through Jesus that we have the revelation we need in order to make sense of the world around us. It's through Jesus that we know what really matters in the future. Because he's coming again. He is the king. And when he returns, all humanity will be divided into just two groups. And wisdom says, listen to what Jesus says and live in the light of it. Wisdom belongs to God and is given by him. And I dare say, if you don't put your trust in Jesus, if you don't listen to his words, well, you don't have wisdom. And you're quite likely to toss and turn in your bed at night because the world won't make sense. You won't be able to control it, however hard you try. Wisdom belongs to God and it is given by him. And then secondly, power belongs to God and is given by him, verse 31 and following. Daniel begins to tell the king his dream in verse 31. He says that the statue represents human power. Uh, It looks so impressive. Uh, We're told, aren't we, in verse 31 that it was awesome in appearance, just as the powerful nations in the world today seem to be so imposing and so permanent. But friends, as we saw with the coronation last weekend, appearances can be very deceptive indeed. So then Daniel uh, gives the interpretation. I just notice in passing, particularly you students, that the dream alone is not the revelation. It's the dream plus the interpretation, which is the revelation. So verse 36, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the statue represents a succession of human kingdoms and empires. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the first. He's the head of gold. He was the king of kings. Uh, Other rulers bowed down before him and acknowledged his authority. But friends, however powerful he was, it was only a limited power. There's a higher throne. There's a greater king. Because Nebuchadnezzar's power was given to him by God himself. Look at verse 37 again, remarkable words. The God of heaven 
has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Now, folks, incidentally, that does not mean that um, God is responsible when power is abused and used wrongly. Human beings are responsible for that. But it does mean that God can give authority and therefore can take it away. Human power is limited. It comes from God. More than that, it's finite. It will come to an end. Nebuchadnezzar's power, great though it was, won't last. Why not? Verse 39. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Well, the scholars have come up with endless theories about which particular kingdoms are represented by the silver, bronze, iron, and clay. But trying to unravel all of that completely misses the point. Because the message is simply this, that all human authority and all human power will ultimately fall. And history proves the point. I mean, the Babylonian Empire was once the greatest empire in the world. What's left of it today? Well, just a few pots and the occasional scraps in museums scattered around the world. What about the Roman Empire? Well, today, just a few ruined buildings, some of them quite special to look at, but they're ruins nonetheless, and a few statues. A hundred years ago, the British Empire extended across a quarter of the whole world. Not anymore. The 20th century saw the rise and fall of the Third Reich in Germany. For a while, it looked unstoppable came and went inside 10 years. And the might of Russian communism fell with the Berlin Wall only 70 years after it started. Seems that Mr. Putin hasn't learned any of these lessons, sadly. But one day, we don't know when, the American dominance of the world will also pass away. Maybe China will take over the number one spot. We don't know. God hasn't actually told us. But one thing we can be absolutely sure of, no human power, none, will last forever. And although kingdoms will go on, rising and falling, some lasting for centuries, some for only a few years, one day there will be no human superpower. Because in the dream, the statue is inherently unstable and insecure. Its feet, verse 33, are a mixture of iron and clay. And in his dream, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar saw a rock striking the statue. Verse 35, the whole thing is smashed to pieces and the wind swept the pieces away without leaving a trace. So friends, appearances can be very deceptive. To the exiles living in Babylon, miles away from Judah, the Babylonian Empire looked very strong indeed. It was impossible to imagine that one day it might fall. But 70 years later, it did fall. 
Nebuchadnezzar's power was limited. God gave it to him. God took it away. What about God? Well, at the time, his power looked so insignificant. I mean, you can imagine the Babylonians, can't you, taunting the people of Judah. In those days, every nation had their own god or gods. But the tiny people of Judah believed that their god was the only god, the creator of the whole world and everything in it. And you can almost imagine, can't you, the Babylonians saying to their Judean slaves and servants, well, uh, tell us about your god. Uh, didn't you tell us that he'd made everything and he's the ruler of the nations? We don't want to boast, but quite frankly, you can't see very much evidence of that around here. And perhaps he's feeling rather tired. Must be absolutely exhausting looking after the whole world. Maybe he's on holiday. How they must have laughed. And of course today there are plenty of people who laugh at the thought that there is one God who's revealed himself supremely in the person of the Lord Jesus, who's the only saviour. And there's no shortage of people in Cape Town who will say, well, can you really believe all that nonsense? I mean, just look around you. It doesn't really look, does it, as if he's reigning here in South Africa. Pathetic, isn't it, to even think such a thing. But appearances are deceptive. In the midst of all the impressive kingdoms of the world, there's another kingdom. It's very different. Not built by man for his glory, it's being built by God himself. It begins in a very, very unimpressive way. Look at verse 34 again. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. Compared to the, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, rock, not an especially impressive material. And yet, it smashed all the other kingdoms to pieces. And in contrast to human power, this divine kingdom is all-conquering and everlasting. I mean, just, just look at verse 44. Fix your eyes on verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Like the Babylonians, we're Always aren't we trying to build a Tower of Babel, trying to puff ourselves up so we can say, well, look what we've achieved. But God will not be mocked. And one day his kingdom will be established in such a way that no one, no one will be able to question it. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they want to or not. That's in the future. But you see, already today, the kingdom of God has been established here on earth. Nebuchadnezzar didn't actually see Jesus in his dream. He simply heard of a future time 
when the kingdom of God would be established in the world. And it actually seems as if he's begun to understand the fact that ultimately power does belong to God. Because in verse 46 we read these astonishing words. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor. And in verse 47, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Well, it's hardly a full conversion. And next week we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar is still a very proud man indeed. But he is beginning to understand that real power belongs to God. And my dear friends, if Nebuchadnezzar could see that then, how much more should we acknowledge it now? The coming of the kingdom that is prophesied repeatedly throughout the Old Testament began to be fulfilled, didn't it, when Jesus came the first time. Its beginning was very unimpressive, just like that little rock. I mean, very few people noticed when the baby was born in a manger, and only a handful were listening when he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And very few people understood what was really going on when after a life of perfection, a life of miracles, a life of amazing teaching, he was nailed to a cross. If you're a historian and you read history books, you'll know that the cross of Christ is hardly ever mentioned. But my dear friends, the cross is the turning point in history. Because from the time of his resurrection and ascension, the future has never been in doubt. The future belongs to Jesus Christ. Because like a rock, he smashed the power of sin by taking its penalty on himself, and he smashed the power of death by being raised from the dead and being established as God's eternal king. And one day, he will return. And today, by his spirit, he's sending his followers throughout the world to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God has already started. Jesus Christ is Lord. Repent and believe the good news. I do hope you have. Because as I close, I want you to listen to the way that the Apostle Paul describes the work of Jesus Christ in Romans 9. You don't need to look it up. Romans 9, Paul says this, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men and women to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have established your rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
We believe that on that rock you are building your kingdom. So please help us to bow before him so that we don't stumble and fall on the day that he returns. And help us to give our loyalty to him above all other claims to our loyalty. Give us the courage to live wholeheartedly for him, for your name's sake. Amen. Ask the musicians to come forward. Please stand with us as we respond by inviting the King of Heaven to establish his rule in our own hearts.